Hello, and welcome to the Time Traveler Dispatch. Um, I know this episode's a little late. Uh, I will tell you why. Uh, well, I'll tell you why now. I won't leave it for the secret. I have a different secret to tell you at the end. Um, I was, for the last two weeks, I spent up in a little house um, by Bodega Bay in California. And originally the plan was like, it'll be like a working retreat where I will go there and kind of work from a new location and whatever. Um, and I did not think to check with the um, hosts of said place how good the Wi-Fi was, and it turns out it was not good. And so I like couldn't download anything. I couldn't upload anything. Um, and that basically meant a sort of a surprise forced vacation, which in fact was pretty good um, and very nice to have, but means that this episode is late and that next. So there was supposed to be a episode of Flash Forward tomorrow, the 14th. That's going to come out on the 22nd, sorry, 21st, that next Tuesday, and then you'll get another episode the 28th. So a little bit of a scheduling rearrange, but it's all going to be fine and we'll get through it. So today is the bonus podcast. We are talking about the episode that Juliet Linus Goodman reported and hosted, um, all about fire. And since it was Julia's episode, um, I decided that they should join me for the bonus podcast um, to talk about all the stuff that they learned in reporting the episode that did not make the final cut. So here we go. Okay. Special bonus podcast. Very exciting. Um, Julia, was there anything in particular? Like, you wanted to talk about fire, and you were like, what is the deal with fire? But, like, why? Like, is there anything in particular that started you down this road? I, that is a really good question. I think, um, I mean, one thing that made me think about it recently is I've been watching a lot of Star Trek and, you know, they're always on these like really futuristic spaceships. Um, and there's this one episode where there's like a really bad plasma fire on the ship and they still are like, you know, it's still just as bad as like a house fire today. And I was just really thinking like, it's interesting that I don't know, you don't really see a lot of natural disasters in shows like that, but they still have to deal with fire. Um, especially in Star Trek, it's like very utopian. There's not really like police in a formal sense. There's not like, I don't know, like the medical services are all just like, boop, boop, you're fixed. Um, but fire was still something that they couldn't really handle and was like completely incapacitating to the ship. Um, I don't know. And I was just like, that seems very real to me because I feel like we are at a point where we are, we, our society is so much more modern than the like when fire was invented, like when humans first discovered fire type of um, like story that we tell about it. And I just think that it's really interesting that it still does kind of like pose this danger to us or is something that we can't like totally figure out yet, I guess. I love that. Yeah, you can be fixed or like ha have food in a pill or whatever, but like fire is not right. Something yeah. That can... <laughs> so I feel like I learned a ton of surprising stuff just from like editing this and hearing you talk about it. But what are some surprising things that you learned in researching this that maybe didn't make the cut for the episode? Yeah, I feel like one of the biggest things, like we talked about this a little bit, but basically this idea that cooking has become more dangerous as a source of fire than it was like 40 years ago. Um, and this is something I found really interesting because, I mean, um, Frank talked about this a little bit. Um, he mentioned this idea that he thought it would be better if humans were kind of cooking over an open flame instead of using like gas ranges and all these modern devices that allow us to like separate ourselves from fire. Um, and he was kind of talking about it in the sense of like, 
we need to be using up some of this extra material in forests so that forest fires aren't so bad. Um, but this is also something that Lynn talked about where cooking causes more fire deaths now than it did in like the 80s. Um, and her thought was that this is partly because of that issue that we talked about in the episode where people think that they can handle a fire themselves, especially if it starts in sort of an everyday way, like, oh, it's just like a pan that's on fire or something like that. Um, but I guess one thing that I learned that surprised me about that is, so we have now these like induction cooktops that are supposed to be able to heat up a pan without getting hot themselves. Um, and I read this paper that was basically these researchers trying to figure out could an induction stove still cause a fire? And they were like, yes, it can. Like if you have flammable materials near it, because it's still heating up a pan hot enough to cook something, it still can cause a fire. Um, and I just think it's kind of interesting that a lot of these inventions are, I think part of the idea is that we want to make them safer, especially for kids, right? Like you don't want to have a hot stove that someone can burn themselves on, but it's actually not protecting us from fire, um, fully at least. Um, and I don't know, I was talking to my cousin who's a firefighter about this, and I feel like she had some really interesting ideas about why it is that cooking specifically is such a cause of fire injuries. Um, and she was saying that she sees a lot of incidents where people will have, um, like a grease fire or something, and they don't know what to do with it. So people usually learn, like, if there's a fire, you throw water on it. And that's what people do. But with a grease fire, that's actually like the opposite of what you want to do. If you have a grease fire, do not do that. It actually causes everything I read about this is like it will explode into a giant fireball. And I was like, that's terrifying. That like, <laughs> I don't know why that happens exactly. But basically, you're like also at your like splashing the grease and that can cause like grease to splash back on you and cause really bad burns. Um, so for anyone out there who may have a grease fire, what you actually want to do is turn off the stove. And like, if you have a lid or something that can cover the pan, you just want to cover it and try to like snuff out the oxygen. Um, you can also pour baking soda over it, interestingly. Um, and my cousin also said you could throw like a towel or a blanket over it. Um, I did not read that in um, like any of the official advice that I read. So just take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> um, but I think like what was interesting to me about that is that like, I think even though we feel kind of like we know a lot about fire, we're really thinking of like wood or paper burning. And when it comes to other types of fire, there's not really as much fire education around that and people don't know how to handle it. Um, and partly because there are all these new devices that we use like gas stoves that are just different types of flame. Um, I think that might be part of why those are more dangerous. Um, but if you have a gas, if you have a, if you have a, uh, whoa, why oil, like a, an oil fire, why am I blanking on the word? Um, uh, if you have one of these fires in your kitchen that is like, uh, from oil, um, can you use a fire extinguisher or is that like too water based? Is that a bad idea? Do you know? I, that is a good question. So let me actually just double check this site that I linked here because one of the things that I did learn really early on in researching this that 
kind of blew my mind, although it, I guess, seems kind of obvious, but there are a bunch of different types of fire and they do all require different types of fire extinguishers. So I feel like most buildings have like one fire extinguisher. What? And yeah, it's like, a, so if you have like, I guess this is part of why. So like if you're in, I don't know, like a chemistry lab or something, they have a different type of fire extinguisher um, because like that is probably going to be a different type of fire. But okay, let's see. So class A is kind of like the standard one that we think about, like paper, wood, cloth burning. Um, Class B is like oil, flammable liquids, gases. Um, Class C is electrical fires. Class D is um, like metal fires, so combustible metals burning. And then class K, oh, class K is combustible cooking oils specifically. Okay, so that's separate from other flammable liquids. But I think most, the most common type of fire extinguisher works on typically class B and C. So there's like, it can work on like flammable liquids and electrical equipment. Um, But there's only one type of fire extinguisher in this list that works on combustible cooking oils. And it's called a wet chemical extinguisher. Okay, quick thing. I did do a little fact check on this, and um, I want to say that many at-home fire extinguishers will work on grease fires. According to UCLA Health, any multi-purpose extinguisher that includes a B in its label is suitable for grease or oil fire. So you should check your fire extinguisher and see what kind it is. Um, I just checked mine, um, and it is a multi-purpose. It's got A and B. Um, It's probably a good idea to do that before there is a fire and know what kind of fire extinguisher you have before a fire starts so that you're not like panicking and trying to read the label and remember in the heat of the moment. Um, It's also worth making sure that you, in fact, know how to use a fire extinguisher before you have to use one. Um, I will link to a quick guide for how to use most fire extinguishers in the show notes. Um, Sometimes your local like REI or Home Depot will have little classes about this. So you can actually like practice and use it. Um, I recommend doing that because if you are in the midst of a fire and you're panicking and you don't know what to do and all of a sudden you're like trying to figure out how to use this thing you've never used, um, that is stressful and not good. So if you've never used a fire extinguisher before, highly recommend practicing um, even like in your backyard or something, just like pull the pin, figure out how to use it, like take a second to do that. You also mentioned that like the electrical fire thing is because John said that thing about like it's actually kind of incredible that there aren't more electrical fires given the amount of electrical wiring that is in our houses. Right. Yeah. I mean, so one interesting thing I learned that I never thought about is that, um, you know, like how some plugs just have two prongs and then some have the third prong. So that's actually a fire safety thing because one of the most common ways that electrical fires start is like you have the two wires and then they basically get too hot and like it's sending the charge back and forth and instead it just like heats up together and causes a fire. So the third prong is like an extra wire that basically can like absorb that extra heat and just like take it away um, and remove that risk of like a essentially just like an electrical device catching on fire um, because it overheats. Um, But yeah, John was saying that like basically just given how much electricity we use, especially in like a big city, there's all this wiring everywhere. It's really impressive that there are as few electrical fires as there are. Um, 
because this is something that people were thinking a lot about when the system was created. Like, we don't just want this to be causing fires all the time. Um, I don't know. I feel like that's kind of a good example of, like, when we first started putting down electrical wiring, people were probably still kind of afraid of electricity in a lot of ways. And it was a weird thing that, like, maybe you weren't totally sure about having this in your house yet um, and you didn't really understand how it worked. I don't know if that, I mean, you know, this is just my own, like, thoughts about this, but I feel like it's interesting that there was this need to make the system so safe at the same time as it was sort of a new thing that people were afraid of. Um, And I think now people's urge is more to like get the new thing, get like the induction cook stove, try to eliminate any sort of danger of a kitchen fire starting or an electrical fire starting. But we don't think as much about like, what would that actually be like if it happens and how do you deal with it? Um, I don't know. So I, I do think it's a good example of something that Frank was talking about, which is like that distance from fire can actually make it more dangerous because we're not used to just interacting with it in like a safe, more controlled way. Um, and then when something does happen, people don't know how to deal with it. I was reading something um, about I was reading some like blog from some electrician for some reason. I don't know how I ended up on this <laughs> blog, but He was saying that, um, I mean, like electricians have a licensure for a reason, right? That like you need to be a licensed electrician. And part of it is because of all the safety stuff of like knowing what is going to cause a fire or what might cause a fire. And this blog was arguing and he had no data to support it. It was all anecdotal. But it is sort of interesting that the rise in kind of like HGTV and home like improvement shows has a lot more people thinking that they can kind Mm. of like do a lot of renovations themselves and maybe like do certain things with electrical that like they are not in fact right qualified to do or should do which was really <laughs> shocking to me cuz like i feel like i'm i love like hanging thing like you know i'm i like enjoy thinking about like redecorating and renovating and whatever but as soon as there is an electrical wire i am like don't touch that that is absolutely not my zone like i want you know like whatever <laughs> electrical scares me but it feels like he he was arguing, and again, like, with no data to support, that, like, this is a thing that he's seeing where he's getting called into jobs and people have clearly done the, like, tried to do the electrical themselves and called because it wasn't working. And he's like, oh, God, like, no, you can't do any of yeah. this. <laughs> Which is sort of terrifying given, like, this point that John was making about, like, how it's like, oh, it's amazing. There aren't more fires. And I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> Yeah, that's, I mean, that is very concerning. It also just makes me think of, I used to live in this, um, like, converted loft apartment that was, like, completely built by people that did not have any actual, like, building safety type of training. Um, The specific apartment I was in, the guy who built it, like, worked with his friend who was a contractor and, like, asked him for advice and stuff, but it was fully, like, he just did all of this himself. And sometimes I was kind of like, I wonder, I didn't worry as much about the electrical, actually. I really was like, I wonder if the toilet is going to like explode at some point because I don't really know what the plumbing situation is here. Um, But yeah, it is interesting how that's like, people do take on those projects themselves. And it's like, it would be nice if there was just a hotline that you could call that's like, can I do this? And they would just be like, no, don't, don't do that. (laughs) The answer is always no. No. (laughs) (laughs) Another thing that we talked about a little bit is the fact that 
Metal can burn, which as you mentioned, like there's a whole fire extinguisher for metal things. I didn't know that metal could catch on fire. Yeah, I really didn't think about that until I was researching this episode. I feel like I've been in like a science class before where they like lit some metal on fire and it looked really cool and colorful, but that didn't make enough of an impression on me to stick, I guess. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, when I was researching this, I was like, yeah, wow, like why doesn't, I don't know, like a pan light on fire? And that's kind of how I came to this realization that metal can burn in some cases. Yeah, and I think I always think of like because one of the television shows that I love is Forged in Fire, which is just a forging competition oh, show yeah. where they oh like. God, I've been blades. watching that. It's so. It's good. such a good. I love that show. <laughs> it's so cheesy and it like, it, but it's so interesting. It's like very cool to watch someone take just like a piece of steel and like heat it up and make it into like this incredible cool thing. Right. But I was thinking like I was thinking of that, and it's like that doesn't. They put it in a really hot. You know, they heat it up so it's like red, and they can you know move the steel. It doesn't catch on fire at any point. Um, and so I was like, oh, like, so, so I'm sure, like, obviously not all metals are the same, et cetera. But you told me, and I did not know this, which that fireworks are metal catching on fire and exploding in really cool, colorful ways. Yes. Um, and so I went down a small rabbit hole of my own uh, about fireworks. Let's just start with what fireworks actually are. This is a thing I did not know. They are metal salts mixed with chemicals that are oxidizing agents and that cause a super rapid oxidation reaction to occur. So the reaction is really, really hot. It's really, really fast. It gives off a ton of energy. And basically that means explosion. And that launches the fireworks into the sky. And then the heat from the explosion is what provides the energy that creates the different colors that you see. So the colors of the fireworks are determined by the metal salts that are present in it. Um, And it's it is that each metal salt burns a different color, but it's actually a little bit more interesting than that even. Um, The heat that these metal salts experience, right? So it gets really, really hot. These metal salts heat up. They excite the metal atoms into a higher energy state, and they're like buzzing all around. And it's when the atoms sort of cool and relax down to their more stable ground state, that relaxation is actually when they emit the colors that you see. So the wavelength or the color of light that is emitted when these atoms relax is what is makes the different colors. So some um, colors come from different atoms. So strontium glows red, sodium burns orange, copper burns green, and then you can make a bunch of colors by mixing salts into by mixing the metal salts in the fireworks, which um, is called painting in the fireworks trade, which is very cool. Um, One color that is particularly challenging to create is blue. Blue fireworks are hard because the copper salt that is required needs a really precise temperature to be excited to and then come down from. And if it's too hot or too cool, the color isn't really there. So if you see a blue firework, you know that that is like very hard and exciting. If you are like me and you are now wondering, like, how bad is it to be exploding metal salts into the air a lot? Uh, Turns out not good. (laughs) Um, And there's two kind of pieces to this. One of them are the sort of explosions and the metal particles. And other the other thing is kind of the um, other chemicals that are involved. So in Spain, there is a fireworks fiesta, um, the St. Joan, uh, St. Joan fireworks fiesta, And apparently studies have shown that metal particle pollution from the fireworks can linger in the city for days. Um, India has an annual Diwali uh, festival, which you've probably seen pictures of, which includes a lot of really beautiful fireworks. Um, But uh, there is a downside. Apparently the Diwali fireworks can cause pollution that is 
really, really terrible. Um, Across India, Diwali fireworks have been linked to a 30 to 40% increase in recorded breathing problems just because there's so much smoke and metal particulates in the air. Um, In 2004, Disney started using compressed air to launch their fireworks in California. So that means that the smoky sort of like particulates in the air um, are lesser. Um, but it's not just that you're like spewing tiny metal particles all over the place. Um, it's also sort of the chemicals that you add to get some of these colors and explosions. Often those are pretty toxic. Um, a 2007 study of an Oklahoma lake following fireworks, um, found that perchlorate levels spiked more than 1000 times above baseline level for 14 hours after the show. Um, perchlorate is a thing you don't want to ingest a ton of, but, um, that study did not look at health impacts to humans. Um, the levels are probably low enough that we are all right. We are big animals, um, but other animals might not be so lucky. Um, I couldn't find a ton of studies that actually specifically tried to quantify the impacts to wildlife from fireworks. Um, And a lot of what you find online is kind of a lot of fear-mongering around chemicals, people who sort of conflate any amount of chemicals with badness. So they say, you know, like, oh, they're all, look at all the chemicals that are in fireworks and therefore they must be bad, Um, which I think is a, a little bit of a complicated thing. But I do think it's probably worth looking into, and I would love to see more work done on whether these light shows are poisoning the fish and other creatures in the water nearby. And the fish don't even get to enjoy the show, which seems unfair. So, okay, I wrote that joke about how the fish don't get to enjoy the show, and then I was like, wait, is that true? Can the fish in, like, say, the San Diego Bay, like the bay near San Diego or the ocean in San Diego, see or hear the fireworks that go off at SeaWorld? Um, so (laughs) I did a lot of searching to try and figure this out and it will shock you to learn that if you Google can fish see fireworks, not a lot comes up. Um, but I did learn that according to the organization, ocean conservation research, all fish, almost all fish have some kind of sound detection apparatus. So they potentially could hear them or maybe feel them, you know, the explosions, but I really wanted to know about seeing them because that's like the good part of fireworks, right? And after a lot of digging and not finding very much, I realized that I should just ask my friend, Ed Yong, who just is finishing up a book about animal senses and knows a lot about these things. And so I texted him and he very sweetly uh, did answer my question without making fun of me for texting Ed, can fish see fireworks? Question <laughs> mark. Um, but he said, um, they might be able to see bursts of brightness, but would probably be unable to resolve any detail. So I think that it is fair to say that fish can't really get the full experience of cool fireworks. But there is an extra sad detail to this, which Ed told me, which is that fish are tetrachromatic, which means they see in four color channels, which is one more than humans who are trichromatic. So if fish could see the fireworks, they would actually probably see way more colors than we do, and it would be so cool. Um, But another fun fact from Ed here, some fish are tetrachromatic only in the part of the retina that faces forward, and they are monochromatic in the part that faces upwards. And that's because if you are a fish, you don't really need color for scanning the sky, right? You only really need to spot silhouettes um, to see, like, is there a big predator up there? And so black and white is totally fine for that part of their eye. So that's a whole bunch of stuff about fish vision um, that you didn't think you were going to get on an episode about fire. Um, But the point of this is that, yes, here on Flash Forward, we fact check even our jokes. Okay, last thing on fireworks. Um, I wanted to know also, like, how do they get the shapes? Like, how do they make 
a heart or a square or a star. Um, it turns out that it's all in the way that the little exploding packets, which are called stars in the business, are packaged and arranged into what are called shells. So it's not even that complicated. What you do is you insert like a piece of cardboard into the shell and then you arrange the stars in a pattern around it. And the cardboard insert then like forces the stars to explode outward in that pattern. And sometimes they're like glued down so that they release faster or slower. And that's basically how you make the little patterns in the sky. Okay. Back to what this episode was actually about, which is fire. Fun fact about Forged in Fire, though, this doesn't have to go in the episode, but you know when they do the quenching thing where they like Uh cool it down, that apparently is oil, not water. Um, I was looking into it because it's like you always see it smoking, and I was like, why is that happening? And it's because I guess if you do water, it like cools it too quickly. Um, so that's another well, case that where you is, could have like an oil fire. And that right? happened on one episode where the guy oh, made the classic mistake. He was one of the finalists. He went, you know, they go home to their home forges. Yeah. And he made the classic mistake of like not accounting for displacement. Archimedes would be very upset oh, with him. No. And so the oil <laughs> spilled out from underneath and caught on fire and the fire department came and it was a oh, whole boy. dramatic thing in the episode. So. Oh, that's so dramatic. Okay. I have to see if I can find that one. <laughs> Um, I feel like yeah. Netflix has like a best of compilation right now. That's Ooh. like that's what I've been watching. Yeah, I do remember the fire department coming, and you could tell this is like a lot of the people who are on this show, right? They have their home forges, which are often just like a garage in their backyard, right? And like the fire department came, and they didn't show a lot of the interaction, but you could tell the fire department was like, "You should not be doing any of this in this like yeah, random like, shed in your backyard." Okay. Yeah, like none this of this is, is not safe up to code. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, um, so your cousin is a firefighter? Yes. So she's a firefighter and she's also an EMT. Um, and I don't know, it's interesting cause it's a very male dominated field. Um, she's a young woman who's like, I feel like she has to be much better at it in order to like prove herself. Um, so I was asking her some of these questions and I feel like she was really like, here's here's what it needs to be like like here's all the problems with the field um it was very interesting but yeah yeah it did I mean one thing that I learned about while researching this episode that I didn't really have time to put into the episode itself um was basically how other countries sort of handle this problem of fire education and like people not fully understanding how they're supposed to handle a fire um my favorite one is this program in Germany. Let me see if I can pronounce this correctly. It's called Die Geschichte der Jugendfeuerwehr, um, which is the Youth Fire Brigade. And it has a really fun backstory. It started in the 1800s on this island where like all of the working adults were whalers and they would go out for super long periods of time. And then, you know, the families and whoever was left were like, what are we going to do if there's a fire? everyone who's of like working age is gone. So they started training the children to be the firefighters, naturally. Um, which apparently this is a television show waiting to happen. I know, right? Um it's like newsies, but firefighters. Yeah. <laughs> um but today most places in Germany still have these types of programs where it's generally kids who are about ten, but in some places kids as young as six can start 
training to be firefighters. Um, so it's not like in the 1800s, it's not just children like firefighting by themselves. There, It's more like, um, it's probably like a like Boy Scouts program. <laughs> yeah, presumably child labor, maybe. Um, but yeah, it's like they train with actual firefighters and learn how to like be around fire safely and they get to handle fire and kind of learn how it acts um, and how to put out fires that are kind of like Lynn was talking about these smaller ones that maybe you could put out by yourself. Um, and so this, does Germany have lower rates of fire problems because of this? That's a really good question. I could not find any research about that. Um, I did find some interesting articles written by like, um, like parent bloggers who like raise their kids some part in the U.S. and some part in Germany. And it was like, here's why, like, this is so much better and taught my kids to be independent. But it was all very anecdotal. Um, But the one, uh, like, research project that I did find that kind of related to this um, is this paper by Dr. Daniel Fessler. And he basically looks at how different cultures teach kids about fire and then how that relates to basically how long kids continue to play with fire and think of it as this like mysterious thing that they really like it's almost like a like a toy or like something that they want to be around and figure out how it works um and I think personally this is something that I have never lost like I still have that kind of like ooh, like fire it's so interesting like I love candles I love staring at a campfire um And so basically his research found that in the places he looked at where kids are taught about fire safety and taught to use fire from a pretty early age, they kind of lose interest in fire as something beyond like a tool by around age 10. Um, But in places like the U.S. where kids are mostly just taught like stay away from fire, it's dangerous, don't go near it, they tend to keep having this interest in fire and there are still kids like playing with fire into their teenage years. Um, And uh, Dr. Fessler suggests that this is because they see it as kind of like a taboo, that there's this urge to like violate this taboo. Um, That's, you know, just one hypothesis as to why this might be. Um, But I also thought it was interesting that he did find lower rates of burn injuries in places where kids are taught to use fire younger. Um, So that could support the idea that the program that Germany is doing might be for the best. Um, And I mean, I'm assuming if there were like a lot of children getting injured in fires, that would probably make the news and maybe they would have to stop. But I I can't say for sure. Um, I really hope at some point to talk to someone who's been through this program and ask them about it. We'll have to, we could, we could put out like a tweet or something and be like, do, have you ever yeah, done this? Yeah, have you <laughs> been in this program? Um, so one last thing that I learned about fire education that there wasn't room for in the episode is, so some of Lynn's research about the psychology of experiencing fire is about the predictors for like, who's going to be traumatized by an emergency or who's going to kind of have this lasting PTSD or like really feel that this was an experience that marked their life in a significant way. Um, And one of the predictors for that is if you felt like you were out of control of the situation when it happened, um, not just that you couldn't impact what was happening, but that you had no idea what to do, like you didn't know how to respond. Um, And so she suggested that better fire safety training could also just be a good sort of emotional tool for us that having some idea of what you can and can't do in a fire would help people feel more like 
they know what's going on in the situation and possibly have less trauma after um, like a fire incident happens. So Germany has their like child firefighters, but they're not child firefighters anymore. (laughs) But um, in the U.S., I know that a lot of fire departments, at least on the East Coast, are volunteer firefighters. Because I remember when we moved, when I was a kid, I was born in California. We moved to Connecticut and my mom, I remember distinctly when my mom found out, because, like, our neighbor was, like, one of the violent volunteer firefighters for, the, like, the area. Yeah. And she was, like, being born and raised in California was, like, I'm sorry, vo- volunteers? No, thank you. Like, she was, like, that was, like, the, the wildest thing she'd ever heard. And, like, that was absurd. Because in California, like, there's these huge wildfires and you kind of, like, need, I think, more of a, like, a pr- professionalized force. Right. Um, she never got over it. To this day, she's like, can you believe <laughs> volunteer? Like, she's like, totally. Right. I mean, which is funny in, because in California, too, it's also like some firefighters are incarcerated people who are like being forced to fight fires and then they can't become firefighters after they're released because they were incarcerated. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think like a lot of the articles that I read in researching this episode So, you know, we talked in the episode about how there are fewer fires than there used to be. And there's all these articles that are like, if there are fewer fires, why do we still have firefighters? Like, what's going on here? It actually turns out that there are more firefighters than there were before. So, like, as the number of fires has gone down, the number of paid firefighters has increased, which I think a lot of the research or reporting that I read interpreted as, like, we just keep hiring firefighters for no reason. Um, But I think one piece of it is this volunteer thing that you're talking about because um, still today, two thirds of firefighters in the US are volunteers. So like, that's a lot. And I feel like maybe it's like a good thing that slightly more of those people are getting paid for like a job that seems like you should be able to make a living doing, I don't know. Um, Like it's interesting that we still rely so heavily on volunteers for something that is like a pretty important public service. Um, But this also kind of led me to just more generally what like emergency services look like in cities and why is it that there are so many more firefighters even though there aren't as many fires. Um, And one big reason for this is that firefighters now tend to do a lot of the emergency medical service provision in cities. So let me see if I can find this. Um, So most cities right now, um, about 15% of emergency medical services are part of like an actual public EMS department. So that's pretty small. Then another 20% are run by private companies, um, which doesn't seem great, like a private ambulance company, which can be more expensive for people. And then half of emergency medical services are provided by fire departments. Um, And they respond to a lot more medical emergencies than fires at this point. Like it's many times more. Um, But I think part of the reason for that is that as fires have decreased, there's also been an increase in this desire for EMS and also kind of an understanding that this is an important public service to have. Um, So a lot of fire departments right now are somewhat understaffed and there are people who have to handle all of the fires and then also are handling the majority of the medical service needs. Um, And a lot of firefighters don't really want to be doing this. My cousin who has worked as both a firefighter and an EMT was talking about how like 
she actually really just wants now to work in like a privately funded um, EMS company because then that's the only thing that you're doing. You don't have to be trying to respond to every emergency that happens in a place. Um, And, you know, like some firefighters, they're kind of busy receiving the training to become a firefighter. So they don't have as much time to get this emergency medical training. Um, And I don't know, I guess like after learning all of this, I was like, it does seem really like at this moment, it's pretty important that we keep the number of firefighters that we have because they're the ones who are responding if like you have a heart attack or a stroke, like that is very likely to be a firefighter who's going to come if you call 911. But it also seems like we should have better funded emergency medical services and maybe let firefighters just fight fires, which is what they like actually train to do and most of them want to be doing. Um, But yeah, it's just one of those things where it's, I don't know, it's interesting to see which public services get funding and which don't. And a lot of these articles were very much on the side of like these like big firefighter unions. They're just like getting paid too much and like they're not letting us just get rid of firefighters. But then you look into it and it's like, well, if we get rid of firefighters and we don't replace it with anything else, there's going to be a lot of emergencies that no one is responding to. And that also would be bad. So... Um, so another thing we talked about on the episode is sort of like fire safety in buildings. And I know you and I talked a little bit about, and a thing we did not really mention on the actual episode was like the Triangle Shirtwaist fire or Ghost Ship fire, which happened in the Bay Area. I know you were here when that happened. Um, but you have a couple of examples here that we didn't get into around like fire safety buildings and, and things that are kind of interesting in like the historical context. Yeah, I think especially when thinking about cities and how fire has worked in cities, it's interesting to me how a lot of the research that I was doing comes back to these specific really big fires that happened. So the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire is one of them um, that kind of led people to realize that fire is a dangerous thing, that we need to like make some safety changes. Um, But one thing that I discovered that was kind of sad and maybe not that surprising is that a lot of these fires like the safety regulations already existed and really it was the fire made people realize we need to actually enforce these um because people just weren't following them um so like you know the triangle shirtwaist fire happened and then that led to a lot of these changes like you need to have fire exits there were a lot of like workplace safety changes um But then about 30 years later, there was this other really big fire called the Coconut Grove Fire that was at this nightclub in Boston, where, again, a lot of people died because there weren't clearly marked exits, which was something that, like, after the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire was put into place, but people still weren't totally following it. Um, And I think, like, that is something that we kind of continue to see with bigger fires today, like the Ghost Ship Fire or um, the Grenfell Tower Fire in London is another one that comes to mind where we have these really big fires and oftentimes it's partly because certain fire regulations weren't enforced. Um, But like with the Ghost Ship Fire, it did reveal a lot of these safety issues in these warehouse spaces where people are maybe like living, working and having parties. But there hasn't really been a big overhaul of these spaces in Oakland where the fire happened. Um, So I think like one of the issues that happens with this, like we talked about in the episode, is that 
code enforcement can be used as just a tool to kind of shut spaces down and remove people from these unsafe spaces, but then people don't necessarily have a safer place to go after that. Um, And the other thing is that even when code enforcement shows up, that doesn't necessarily mean that like the problems are going to be addressed right away. Um, So I think one of the big sort of like narratives that emerged out of Ghost Ship is like a building inspector was at this building just a few weeks before the fire and issued a citation to the building but that didn't lead to like the fire safety issues being resolved. Um, So it's kind of this issue where like some of these problems cities do know about, they're aware of them. um, And it's kind of this question of like, how do we bring buildings up to code and make them safer without just evicting people or shutting down spaces that are very meaningful to people. Um, And yeah, this also came up with the Grenfell Tower fire. which is something that John actually talked about because you know we talked about this issue where sofas are made of polyurethane foam, which is like solid gasoline, as he said. Um, and this was also one of the materials that was used in the Grenfell Tower that caused the fire to spread so quickly. Um, so there wasn't supposed to be like as much flammable material in the original building plans. And then it was like when they were building it, they kind of just did that. So again, it was like, not following the regulations or like not getting fire safety departments to sign off on this. Um, But that's a big part of why the fire spread as quickly as it did. Um, And I was reading this article about how there are still more than 200 buildings in London that have this same flammable material on the exterior. Um, And so far, nothing has been done to address that. Um, So I think, I don't know, it is kind of like, John was talking about just like how fire is this really big, tragic thing that people feel very strongly about. Um, But sometimes that reaction doesn't translate into like actual policy changes. Sometimes it takes several of these really bad fires for there to be actual kind of like enforcement changes, which is kind of frustrating because it's like, if we know that this is a problem, maybe we should just fix all these buildings. But I guess, you know, it it takes more than people just being like, we should do that. Like cities have to actually decide to do that and allocate funding and all of this. But yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because it is like, you know, I think a lot of the time when people see fire, it sort of is like, oh, this tragic accident. When in a lot of cases, yes, maybe it is tragic and it's sort of an accident, but it was also totally preventable. Like the Triangle Shirtwaist fire was so bad and so many people died because they had locked the doors to keep union organizers out. Right. And like that's why so many people died. And it was like, yes, it was a tragic. It's tragic that a fire started and it was sort of like an accident. But then like the actual destruction and the the like the extent of the damages is like related to a specific thing that someone did to either cut corners or to try and like take people's rights away or whatever it is. And that kind of like, I think gets us to this next thing that we were going to talk about, which is like the, the fact that like wildfires have disproportionate impacts on different populations. Right. And like, they don't impact everybody the same way in the same way that like housing fires you mentioned on the episode don't impact everybody the same way. Right. Yeah. So we definitely talked in the episode about some of the inequities and how building fires impact people um, and a lot of that being due to code enforcement. Um, But one thing that came up when I was researching the episode that we didn't have room for was the inequities in 
basically who faces the worst impacts from wildfires. Um, so it's, you know, partly because of um, some things that Frank talked about in the episode. So like fire suppression is kind of tied into this history of racism and genocide of indigenous communities. Um, and indigenous folks tend to be the hardest hit by the current status quo because it's kind of directly going against the relationship that they need with fire. Um, but another piece of it is that wildfires tend to disproportionately impact poorer neighborhoods, neighborhoods of color. Um, partly, actually, same thing as building fires because buildings that have more structural issues are more likely to have impacts from natural disasters. Um, but it's also partly because of kind of similar to what I was talking about earlier, like a lack of funding for infrastructure in poorer neighborhoods. Um, so there's this one study that I found that looked at, basically compared all of the census tracts in the US um, and looked at how vulnerable they were to wildfires. Um, and they basically found that communities with high numbers of Black, Latino, and Indigenous folks are about 50% more vulnerable to wildfire. So that's kind of taking into account both just the likelihood of a wildfire reaching that neighborhood, as well as the response framework in place. So like what do the emergency services look like? What kind of resources are available after people have experienced an emergency like that? Um, there's also some research suggesting that wildfire prevention efforts increase after a wildfire, which makes sense. You know, wildfire happens. People are like, we need to do more to prevent this. But that's only true in higher income areas. So in lower income areas, they might experience a wildfire, but it's less likely that government agencies will take that and actually create more proactive measures in response to that. Um, and then the final piece of things is that natural disasters also increase economic inequality. Um, so part of that is like people who already have a support network in place don't need to spend as much money to recover. Like say you already have home insurance, you might be able to repair your home um, and replace a lot of your belongings without spending as much out of pocket. But let's say you were like renting an apartment, maybe you didn't have renter's insurance, you might just end up losing all of your belongings and having to buy new clothes, new furniture and all these things. Um, there's also this problem where, I mean, I don't know, it's it maybe is not fair to say it's a problem, but a lot of times after a natural disaster happens, wealthier people who can afford to will move out of the area. So this is like something that we saw after Hurricane Katrina, where people who had the ability to just left um, and the people who are left behind to have to deal with the consequences tend to be lower income people who can't just leave. Um, and that results in these situations where like an area that's experiencing a lot of these impacts of climate change, particularly will sort of slowly see all of the wealthier residents leaving. And then it becomes this area that's underfunded and people agencies don't care as much about putting resources towards it. And that problem just gets worse and worse because it's like every disaster that happens, more of the wealthier people just leave. Um, so, yeah, there are all these reasons why wildfires and other natural disasters in general are just a lot harder for lower income people to deal with. Um, and that disproportionately impacts people of color. Um, this is also 
not really related to this, but I just really wanted to show you this because it looks really cool and maybe we can link to this somewhere. So I just found these photos of, this is more like on the um, controlled burn uh, topic that Frank was talking about, but it, okay, so if you scroll down like halfway through, do you see these photos of like, it's like six photos of a forest burning kind of? Does it say unmanaged? Yeah, unmanaged and then yeah, yeah. Okay, I see it. Yeah, so the top oh, one is just yeah. like how it would be today normally, and then the bottom one is with more controlled burns. And I just, it's so wild to look at because the top one, it's like, you know, the middle photo where everything's burning, everything is fully on fire, and then at the end, it's just like black burnt, like stumps of trees. But then in the managed forest, it's like really just the undergrowth is burning. Like the really tall trees aren't lit on fire at all. And then at the end, they're totally fine. And it's just like, I don't know. It's just so wild to see how different this looks. Yeah. I thought that was really right. Cool. And because the top one, the unmanaged forest one is definitely like what we have come to sort of like think of when we think of a wildfire, at least in California, where it's like right. everything is on fire and then afterwards everything is destroyed. And right, like, exactly. That's not necessarily just like how fires work, right? Because um, it seems, right. I think, like for many people, myself included, for a long time, I sort of didn't think that there were like multiple ways that wildfires could happen, right? You think, like, okay, well, there's a wildfire, everything lights on fire. Right. That's just what it means to have a wildfire. And like, that's not actually true. Yeah, totally. That's cool. Yeah. I will link to this in the show notes for sure. Um, okay. Final takeaways. What did you learn from this episode? My biggest thing that I've been telling literally everyone is if your couch is on fire, get out of your house. Like that has been like the thing that I've been telling yeah, everybody that I know. That's very important. I've been telling people that as well. I think that's one of the most like practical pieces of advice that came out of this episode for sure. Um, I guess for me, like I really started this episode just wondering why and being kind of frustrated by the idea that we still have to deal with fire. It's such a big problem. Um, and it just, like, I'm not even sure I think that we should completely control fire. It just seems like something that we should have the ability to do as modern humans. And it surprises me that we don't. Um, but after researching this episode, I really think it is not possible for us to completely control fire or completely remove fire risk from our lives, um, at least until we, like, figure out how to survive without, like, heat or cooking, potentially. Um, but I think, like, really what I took away from this episode is, like, fire doesn't just have to be this dangerous, bad thing. Um, I think pretty much everyone I talked to mentioned this idea that we need to think about fire with more nuance. Like, we need to distinguish fires that's that are really big and scary and dangerous and unmanageable from controlled burns, from really small kitchen fires that maybe we can deal with ourselves, um, and actually just spend more time with fire learning about how it works, um, especially for kids who are learning about fire safety um, to really start teaching people the difference between like fires that you can handle and fires that you can't and fires that are safe and okay to be around and ones that are not. Um, and I think, like, that is a nice takeaway for me because I do really like fire and I like, you know, spending time around a campfire. I like cooking. So it's nice to just think about 
you know, we can each develop a safer relationship with fire by spending more time with it, educating ourselves more about how it works. Um, And I think the more that we move towards doing that as a society, the better off that we'll all be and the safer we'll all be. Yeah. So you're endorsing playing with fire, but safely. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, You know, maybe like with a professional nearby. If you're a six-year-old listening to this, please don't just go play with matches right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. Okay. Awesome. Good work. Bonus podcast complete. Okay, that is everything that Julia wound up cutting from this episode. Um, Now to the final few things from me. So first, a story that I'm following. Um, And the story I'm following is the trial of Elizabeth Holmes has started. So Holmes founded Theranos, which you've probably heard of. um, And the trial is basically about the company and um, the ways in which she made a lot of claims about what her company's technology could do that wound up not being true, not panning out. So the big question of the trial is whether or not Holmes knew that the claims that she was making were untrue, how much she knew that, whether she was just flat out lying or whether she was engaging in what a ton of other companies and technology do all the time, which is sort of speaking in hopeful terms about what they think their technology might be able to do as if it is a lot closer and more plausible than it really is. So the big question I think that's going to kind of come out in this trial is, Whether there is a difference and how big that difference is between, say, what Holmes said about Theranos and what, for example, Uber claimed that it could do with self-driving cars, right? Both were and are flatly untrue, not possible, not even on the horizon, not working very well at all. But they were both following kind of like the fake it till you make it model that has made a ton of people in Silicon Valley very, very rich. Um, As one legal expert put it, Uh, The question here is, did they know they were faking it or did they believe they were making it? And that's kind of going to be, I think, the big hinge point for the trial is how much Holmes really knew about the plausibility of the thing that she was selling to investors. Now, there's an added layer of um, complication here. Um, Elizabeth Holmes also claims in some of the um, court proceedings, and we'll hear in the trial a little bit, that her co-founder of the company also abused her, which is really dark and terrible. Um, And I think that's another piece of this that you don't often see in these trials, but it is a jury trial. Um, She's facing many years in prison if she is convicted, and it is a case that I'm definitely following, and we will see what the jury decides. Um, second, a book I'm reading. Um, I'm currently reading The Language of the Night by Ursula K. Le Guin. This is one of the very few, if maybe the only Ursula K. Le Guin book that I have not read. And it is a collection of essays about science fiction. Um, I'm really excited to get to it and um, to finally check it off the list. I just recently took it off the hands of a friend who was trying to downsize her book collection. And I'm excited to read it. Okay. And then the last thing, as always, is a secret. Um, My secret this week is that, um, as you may know, um, if you get the newsletter um, and on past episodes of this podcast, I have talked about the fact that I am doing um, pottery. I'm learning how to throw on the wheel and stuff like that. My class ended at the local studio um, a couple weeks ago, and I really wanted to keep practicing. The wheel is something that really requires like a lot of practice. But being a member at the studio is pretty expensive, and I already have a kiln, which is like a big piece of what you would pay for a membership at the studio. And so I went back and forth, 
And finally, I just decided to buy a wheel, a used wheel on Craigslist. So I just got my little mini garage studio set up and I'm really excited to continue to work on it. So um, it's like a very tiny space in our garage um, that gets no light. So I need to figure out a lighting situation, but I'm really excited for it. So you'll, um, you'll see some more pottery creations on my Instagram at some point in the future. 